I'm Nita, and you're listening to Slaying in Real Life. Today we're talking about episode 5 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, season 1, Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. Let's get into it. This episode opens with a fight scene for the first time in the series, immediately followed by Giles stepping up and critiquing Buffy's technique. While giving her a lecture, he stops to pick up a ring. On the ring, Buffy recognizes the symbol, and Giles is worried about the arrival of the vampire gang associated with the symbol. I love the dynamic between Giles and Buffy, the girly theatrics he has to go through while watching Buffy grow up. While he's trying to get her to pay attention to his lecture on the cult, they're interrupted by a broody school hunk, Owen, who is asking to check out a copy of Emily Dickinson poems. Buffy strikes up a conversation with him, and there is a definite spark. Buffy and Willow bond through this dating effort on Buffy's part. Xander is still being mopey, and Willow hopes he gets the clue. These scenes between Buffy and Willow make me a little sad now. Willow is the only person in Buffy's life that truly lets her be a teenager. I remember being that young and school feeling like an escape from what I felt overwhelmed by in my own life. My friends gave me the age-appropriate outlet that I needed to keep me grounded and sane. This episode also sets up Buffy and Cordy's rivalry. They both like Owen, and the girls are similar in many ways. Owen doesn't seem interested in Cordelia, but she sees this as a way to assert her dominance over the new girl who doesn't know her place. When Cordy later sees Owen with Buffy, she unknowingly decides to go after Angel, who was there to see Buffy as well. She's completely flabbergasted. Why is this happening to me? When Buffy gets asked out by Owen, Giles breaks the news that a new threat is in town. The Anointed One is a pivotal vampire that the Master needs and will use as a weapon to get free. They need to keep this prophecy from coming true. He forces her to choose her destiny instead of her social life, and they go to the graveyard, only for nothing to happen. She misses her first date and comes late to see Cordy all over Owen. She leaves. The next day, Owen asks her out again, and they try again that night. I'm so over Xander trying to sabotage his friend's love life. She only thinks of him as a friend. She's already said it. Move on. Before the date, he's a total creeper, slut-shaming her and then trying to watch her change in her jewelry box mirror. Not cool. Giles tries to catch her before she leaves, saying that someone who was wanted for murder had just been killed in a bus crash where five people had died. He believed this was connected to the prophecy, but Buffy is done with the whole thing and doesn't want to break her plans just as Owen shows up to her house. Giles being at her home after school is weird enough to explain as it is. Giles lets her go, but he's still worried enough to investigate on his own. This date doesn't go well either. It's an even bigger disaster than the first attempt. First off, Buffy is trying way too hard and it breaks my heart. She asks him what version of her he likes best and I cringed. Cares! He shouldn't have a preferred version of you to be worthy of any of them. Also, Owen is a jerk who makes her feel frivolous for caring about dating and having a teen experience. But he sounds like he's depressed to be edgy and is trying to be a cool dude. When Cordy shows up and Owen rebuffs her in favor of their date, Buffy basks in his attention. But Cordy looked amazing, so that was a win. Angel shows up and reminds her of her duty and is also very irritated by her being on a date after looking so cute in his jacket. She enjoys telling him that she's on a date, until she is interrupted again by her friends. Xander and Willow have come when Giles goes to the funeral home alone and gets trapped by vampires. Giles believes that the Anointed One is at the funeral home and hopes to be able to handle it himself. Willow and Xander know it's a terrible idea and have come to warn Buffy. 
Buffy tries to shake off Owen, but he goes to the funeral home and is confronted with his first vampire. He was so funny and put out by her trying to leave him behind. He wanted to do spooky stuff too. Exactly what she was worried would happen did indeed happen. Owen, Willow, and Xander got cornered by a religious fanatic aboard who they believed to be the Anointed One, who's now a vampire. Buffy saves the day, but Owen seems creeped out and wants nothing to do with her now. Until the next morning, when he realizes that he loved the adrenaline rush and hopes that they can go out again. Buffy fears it was too much and then has to reject him because he liked it too much. She has to keep herself safe and keep others safe from her life. In the end, the vampire at the funeral home was just a religious fanatic. The real anointed one was a little boy on board, who has already been turned. This was a win for the master. Okay, now for some fun facts. This whole series was started off by the 1992 movie script written by Josh Whedon. He told Luke Perry at the time that he was going for a near-dark feel, a 1980s vampire movie. If you haven't seen it, it's fucking fantastic. Bill Paxton plays in it and has to be one of the best bad boy vampires of all time. Anyway, in that movie, there is a child vampire named Homer. He's terrifying. The reality of being stuck in a child's body and having to commit murder to survive is a unique situation that is also really heartbreaking. Homer is kind of driven crazy by a need for some kind of child companionship. The only way to make that happen is for another child to die. The anointed one and the perversion that is taking the soul of a child is done beautifully in this episode. It's the ultimate snub to the forces of good. Two iconic quotes occur in this episode. The first is from Buffy in response to Giles doubting the likelihood of her dating ending well. She tells him that she'll leave her button that says, I'm a slayer, ask me how, at home. The second quote is said by the master. After throwing a minion across the room, he says, here endeth the lesson. This is also spoken by Spike in Fool for Love and Buffy in the Showtime episode. And one last nugget, my favorite kind of goof. At 28 minutes, 26 seconds, Angel breaks character for the first and only time in the entire series when he meets Owen. He isn't a hundred years old vampire in this scene. He's just a dude being ticked off about another dude touching his girl. Today's cookie binge is inspired by Cordelia's description of Angel, salty goodness. All right, onto the true crime portion of the episode. The bus crash is the biggie in this one. It's responsible for fulfilling a prophecy that is supposed to ultimately release the master from his cage, the last ace up his sleeve. On December 1st of 1938, another myth was born. The legend says that a school bus stalled on the railroad tracks and a train hit it, killing all the children inside. If you park on the tracks, you'll feel the car moving forward and handprints of the ghost children will be on your car. The children protect anyone from coming to the same fate that they did. But like many myths, this one has been debunked. San Antonio is the location of these mysterious train tracks and their legend. However, this event didn't even take place in San Antonio, rather just outside of Salt Lake City in Utah, 1,300 miles away. Not only that, but the baby powder trick only highlights fingerprints that are already on your car. However, a magnetic field really does move your car and this legend becomes attached to explain it. The actual event to inspire the legend in 1938 was the first storm of the winter. A morning school bus was heading to Jordan High School and couldn't see the approaching train through the thick fog. The two collided at 8.43 a.m. The driver, Farrell Shilcox, and 23 students on board were killed that day. 15 people survived the accident. 
It was the worst bus crash in history at the time and resulted in more strict safety regulations. It was the worst bus crash in history at the time and resulted in more strict safety regulations. However, it wouldn't end this push and pull that the transportation system had with legislation. New rules would be set, a terrible accident would occur, and that disaster would teach more people about safety and what needed to be done to save lives. The United States had an unbelievable amount of bus crashes as the kinks were worked out, robbing many people of their children and loved ones. People used this grief to create laws that made a difference. It also helped create training situations to help first responders. In 1987, the ambulance service in Kentucky staged a bus accident involving two other cars as a training exercise. It wasn't something they were expected to be tested on so quickly. It was May 14, 1988, and church day at Kings Island Amusement Park. Buses lined the interstate as the sun set. The bus representing LIFE Youth Group at First Assembly of God did this trip every year. It was an annual tradition children brought guests to. The group planned to get on the road at 8.30, but two boys trying to win prizes for their girlfriends didn't make it back until 9. Wayne Cox was one of the boys trying to impress his new girlfriend, Christy Pearman. She was the daughter of the bus's driver, John Pearman. When they got on the road, some of the children were still wet from the amusement park and cold, so they shut most of the windows. After about an hour, John Pearman made a pit stop for gas and refreshments. At the station, he teased his daughter, Christy, and joked that he was going to make her sit with him on the next leg of the trip. Thank goodness he joined Wayne towards the back of the bus instead. After getting back on the road, it was late and dark. On I-71 at 10.55, a truck going the wrong way collided with the front of the 1977 Ford bus. The reaction time the driver would have had was only three quarters of a second. The door of the bus broke to the side, puncturing the gas tank beneath it. The bus tilted, skidding to the side for a few feet. The car next to the bus was able to get out of the way just in time. The skids brought up sparks, which ignited the gas tank and a fuel-fed fire snaked up the bus stairway. Chuck Keto was standing in the exact spot and his body was engulfed in flames, illuminating him against the front of the bus. The interior of the bus was thrown into darkness as the fire became catastrophic. It was later found that within minutes, the interior of the bus had the capability of reaching 1500 degrees. John Pearman stood and tried extinguishing the flames, yelling for everyone to get out. Panic erupted and children fell into the foot-long aisle. A cooler in the aisle that could no longer be seen only made matters worse. Children were becoming wedged in, their only escape. The emergency door at the rear end of the bus. The metal walls of the bus were hot to the touch in a matter of seconds. The metal seats melted along with the line of plastic covering them. As the temperatures rose, the top of the bus became so hot it was able to peel your skin off your body. When the door was finally open, the oxygen fed the fire further and caused a secondary burst. Jamie Hardesty was the first one to escape and focused on pulling out his peers. Jack and Joan Armstrong were also on the interstate and saw the accident. They pulled over and began to help. Jack was a volunteer firefighter and climbed onto the bumper handing children to Jamie and his wife to be dragged over to the median for safety. He kept going, going into the actual bus when the doorway was clear, until the bus was too hot to return. A neighbor that lived near the interstate heard the crash and ran outside to help. Jamie Hardesty then broke windows to allow extra ways to escape when they couldn't go inside anymore. Wayne Cox was able to pull Christy towards the back of the bus before becoming buried in the bodies himself. He swam through the chaos in the dark until he was pulled out. 
Christy ended up having to climb on the back of the seats that had reached frying pan searing. She made it to the back before being pulled out by Jamie. Sarian Foran was one of the last to be pulled out. At the amusement park, she had bought a huge helium balloon. In the inferno, the balloon exploded and stuck to her face. The last person to escape was Carrie Orance, who was sitting in the very first row. The impact threw her into the aisle, and she almost got to the back before collapsing in one of the seats. She was able to wake herself up, pull herself up on the seats, and drag herself to the back, falling out the open door. The last sign of life the survivor saw was an arm reach out the window briefly before falling away again. The vicinity of the accident to the road made it hard to collect evidence, so everything was photographed and then covered with the tarp. It was decided that it would move as an intact scene to the nearby Fort Knox base and the facilities there would act as a temporary morgue. News of the crash and its severity swept over the community. Parents showed up to the church to pick up their children and were turned away. It took hours and three different hospitals to get a clear picture of how many people survived out of the 67 on board. 42 individuals were brought in and handwritten list of the missing and the hospitalized were posted and updated as often as possible. After a few days, the parents who had yet to reunite with their children and spouses realized that it was because the dead were still being identified. They weren't at the hospital to be found. Family members were asked to bring medical and dental records to the Fort Knox facility, and with the family's interviews, 27 bodies were identified. There were four adults on board that night, and only one escaped. Janie Paget was able to climb through one of the only open windows in the front of the bus. John Pierman didn't make it out of the bus. He was driving that night. He was only 36 and had become an ordained minister only the month before. His daughter was also on board that night and survived. The family of Chuck Keita were informed of his death, something confirmed by many survivors of that night. Joy Williams was the last adult on board and identified easily because she had been the only female adult present who was still on board. However, it was the last easy thing about that fact. Joy was on board with her 14-year-old daughter, Kristen, and her 10-year-old daughter, Robin, as their parent chaperone. They all died that night, leaving Sergeant Lee Williams without his entire family. As bodies were identified and funerals were planned, the community searched for answers. The first was in human form, Larry Mahoney, the driver of the truck that night. Larry was 34 at the time and worked at a chemical plant. Two hours after the accident, which he survived, he had his blood alcohol level tested. It was 0.24, two times the legal limit. Through interviews with his friends and local bar employees, they gained insight into his Saturday. He went to a bar and went to at least two friends' houses. Mahoney was drunk by 9 p.m., and his keys were actually taken by a friend he was visiting. However, he promised to drive the only two-tenths of a mile from his friend's house to his own and go to sleep. But Mahoney didn't. He went in the opposite direction, bought more beer, and got onto the interstate. <clears throat> he was seen driving erratically that night by other drivers, tailgating some, doing illegal U-turns, speeding, and driving in the wrong direction. Despite not remembering that night at all, Larry Mahoney was arrested and charged with the deaths of 27 passengers. However, Mahoney isn't the only one responsible for the tragedy that took place. The parents' outcry included one common thread. 
They were on a school bus. They expected a school bus to be safe. These two factors became the cornerstones of Mahoney's case and something that the parents disagreed on. Some parents were faced with the horrifying reality of paying mountains of hospital bills for surgeries to save their children's lives. A civil suit against Ford, the maker of the bus, was pursued as a way to fix the problem. The suit was more than fruitful. The investigation into the model of the bus showed that the gas tank wasn't protected from the outside, an issue later remedied in models with a safety cage over the gas tank. Ford settled with many parents out of court, and the decision of whether or not to settle became a matter of debated opinion between the parents. One of the parents who didn't settle asked for a dollar and for Ford to recall and retrofit buses like the one involved in the accident. However, Ford made it a point not to include a recall in their settlement because it wasn't a good precedent to set for the company. In fact, they weren't sure if they were going to recall these and take them off the market or retrofit anything. Regardless, the facts brought up in the civil suit gave Mahoney's lawyer something to think about. The gas tank being without a safety cage caused the explosion. To what extent is Mahoney responsible? The bus was used in last year's trip to Kings Island without a problem. The capacity was for 66 with 11 rows and 22 seats. What they didn't know until the trial was that the 66 recommended capacity was for school children only. The capacity for older students and adults was only 42. So overcrowding definitely could have created a problem all its own. Before that question was answered, the community drew together to lay their loved ones to rest. Josh Conyers and Julie Ernest were laid to rest in Radcliffe. Josh Conyers was 14 and in ninth grade. He loved karate, fishing, and playing with his younger brother. Julie Ann Ernest was a 12-year-old 7th grader from Germany. She had a 4.0 and loved to read. Chadwick was buried in Liberty, Kentucky. His beloved baseball team acted as his pallbearers. He was 14 in 8th grade and also liked to play the drums. Tina Mustaine was buried in Texas. She was also in 8th grade, was in band, and played first base for her softball team. There was a triple funeral for Mary Daniels, Denise Vogland, and Amy Wilock that brought 500 people to tears. Mary Daniels was 14, an honors student, and enjoyed needlepoint and water skiing. Denise Vogland was 13 and remembered as a neighbor softball game organizer. Amy Wheelock was 14, a gifted trumpetist, cheerleader, and gymnast. Another shared funeral said goodbye to eight. Richard Gaughan, Chuck Keita, Anthony Marks, Emily Thompson, Diwali Official, Philip Morgan, Billy Nichols, and Christy Yuhi on March 20th. Richard was 19 and looking forward to college. His mom placed his graduation cap on his casket. Chuck Keita was buried under an American flag. He was 34 and had served in Vietnam as a youth and music director of the First Assembly of God. Anthony Marks was 15 and also on the basketball team. His best friend Harold Dennis survived and went on to play college football. He remembered his friend as always being happy and making friends easily. Emily Thomas was 13, tall, and had a beautiful smile. Diwali Official was 12 years old, a thespian, debater, part of the youth group, and drama club. Philip Morgan was 13 and played the drums. Billy Nichols was remembered to be very well-dressed and handsome. He was 17. Crystal Yuhi was 13 and loved to be part of amateur music and drama productions. Shannon Fair was buried the next day. She was 14, an honor student, and had been baptized recently. On December 1, 1989, Larry Mahoney was found guilty of 27 counts of second-degree manslaughter. 
16 counts of assault in the second degree and wanton endangerment. He was given 16 years and served nine and a half. He was released from prison in 1999. He has never publicly spoken about the event, which he stands by not remembering. This was not something that Kathy Nunnally, mother of Patty Nunnally, would take laying down. She remembers her 10-year-old daughter as a model student, a perfectionist. She had recently placed third in a speech competition against high school students. When Patty died, Kathy wanted to make sure that no one else went through something similar. She began working with a group called Mothers Against Drunk Driving and admits to hating Larry and wanting to see him crucified. Her champion of the issue helped create regulations and legislation that led to a higher benchmark for school bus safety. She became the president of the organization in 1998 and 1999. Janie Fair, mother of Shannon Fair, also took refuge in MAD. She and her husband got involved together and became national lobbyist for the group. Janie went on to become vice president. Unfortunately, she lost a battle against cancer in 2008. However, the lives that she touched and touches is immeasurable. Other families focused on healing and somehow finding a way to move on. Lee Williams found solace in other survivors during this dark time. His wife, Joy, was only 34 when she died. They had been high school sweethearts, and she had recently earned her real estate license. Their two children? That was an even harder stone to swallow. Kristen was 14 and played clarinet in the school band. She was sensitive and loved the arts. Robin was 10 and the complete opposite. She loved softball, was a good student, and couldn't wait to play on a real team. Dottie Pierman was grieving the loss of her husband along with her three children. She and Lee leaned on each other during this time and decided to meet for the first time over coffee to ask as consolers for one another. What they didn't expect was to spend four hours in that coffee shop and fall in love for the second time in their life. They ended up getting married and Lee had the miracle of being able to be a father to three bonus children. Today, it's been over 30 years since that terrible night. The survivors are in their 30s and 40s trying to make sense of the impact this had on them and what to do with that experience. Harold Denner survived that night, but his best friend Anthony Marks didn't. He helped create the documentary Impact and wanted to make sure everyone had a platform to tell their story. He ended up being able to play football in college and is now a physician's assistant. Sierra and Madden actually tracked down Larry Mahoney, knowing the man was important to her healing journey. She was burned over 65% of her body, a lot on her face, neck, and chest. In school, she was the victim of incredible bullying. She talks about still being upset despite the new regulations making buses safer. It's not fair that she had to go through what she did to give lawmakers a reason. Jason Buher, now 43, is a school principal and basketball coach who uses his experience as a way to talk about drunk driving as a school speaker. Carrie Arendt was the last to escape that night. She had severes all over her body, and her leg had to be amputated from the knee, and she had lung damage from the smoke inhalation. Today, she is a nurse, a mother, and a wife. School buses now have side exits, roof hatches, pop-out windows, and are fueled with less combustible diesel. If you want to get more involved with the fight about drunk driving, survivor Quentin Higgins has a unique approach. Quentin now drives a school bus for a living, and when he found a 1977 Ford bus for sale, this one with the safety cage, he bought it. He turned it into a mobile memorial and replica of that night in order to honor those who died. He also works with schools with anti-drunk driving organizations to help end teen drinking. For more, you can look up Quentin at avoiceforchange.com. To end this case, I wanted to give you the last five names of the people who died that night. 
Their families didn't share as much information, but I did find their obituaries and wanted to make sure that they were remembered. Jennifer Ann Amitt was 13. She was an excellent trumpet player and babysitter. Sandy Brewers was 12 and was described as contagiously cheerful. Lori Halzer was 11. She loved music and even danced in the German ballet while her dad was stationed there. Kashawn Etheridge was 14 and learning to play baseball. Cynthia Ann Atherson was 13 and had just had her braces removed. Last, April Mills was 13 and was said to be good-natured and sweet. That's it for today. Thank you for listening and supporting this project. If you want access to the bonus episodes, check out the area we have at Patreon. You can also find me on Instagram and at neataffairsauthor.com. Join us next week for episode 6, The Pack. Hyena possession, bullying, attempted rape, it's a heavy one. As always, we will also have a true crime case inspired by the episode. Can you guess what it is?